0: to you i'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell a battle in the heart of alabama caught- You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hey, good morning, y'all. Welcome to The Valley Labor Report. My name is Adam Keller, and this is Shot Talk, our Thursday morning episode we're producing with a focus on labor education, history, and training. Thursday, July 20th, and we're broadcasting live from Spice Radio Studio in the heart of the Tennessee Valley in Huntsville, Alabama. Every episode is live streamed on YouTube and Facebook and is released on your favorite podcasting platform in the coming days. <clears throat> Excuse me, y'all. Today on the show, we're going to do a little bit of training and a little bit of Southern labor history as we examine a Labor Notes Stewards Corner article on effective flyers by Dan Lutz and then take a look at the teacher strike that almost was in 1979 Choctaw County, Alabama. Before I do that, I do want to take a moment to thank our very first sponsor for Shop Talk. At the Valley Labor Report, we are big fans of Labor Notes. Labor Notes is a media and organizing project that since 1979 has been the voice of union activists who want to put the movement back in the labor movement. Through their magazine, website, books, conferences, and workshops, labor, Mo- labor Notes promotes organizing, aggressive strategies to fight concessions, alliances with worker centers, and unions that are run by their members. Labor Notes is also a network of rank-and-file members, local union leaders, and labor activists who know the labor movement is worth fighting for. They encourage connections between workers in different unions, worker centers, communities, industries, and countries to strengthen the movement from the bottom up. With 40 years of movement building behind them, Labor Notes exists as a resource for leaders and union members who want to chart a new course for the labor movement. At the Valley Labor Report, we are proud subscribers and supporters, and we encourage our listeners to do the same. Go to labornotes.org to find out more. So, y'all, each month we do bring you a special Labor Notes-themed episode of Shop Talk. No guests this time. Instead, I'm going to do a little bit of a mixture of history and training today. Uh, just two short segments. going to have a shorter episode. Like I said, no guests today. Uh, we're going to start by taking a look at the Steward's Corner article from earlier this year by Dan Lutz. And it's called Secrets of a Successful Flyer. It was published back in February in the Steward's Corner, and I thought it was worth highlighting for its practical advice on an essential tactic for organizers. So the Steward's Corner article, Secrets of a Successful Flyer by Dan Lutz, back in February 9th, 2023, I'm going to first quote here uh, from the opening of his article. It was a snowy morning in 2002. I was a brand new shop steward in CWA Local 3372 in Lexington, Kentucky, and I had volunteered to hand out the flyers for our contract campaign. I handed out 200 copies, then headed into my shift at a Verizon 411 call center. When I passed the garbage can, I saw most of my flyers, wadded up and thrown away. In the two decades since, many unions have turned to email, texting, and social media to reach members. That's a serious mistake. The humble black and white workplace flyer is still our most direct way to talk to our coworkers about why the boss is wrong and what we're going to do to make the situation better. Since that day, I've made and distributed hundreds more flyers. Here are some lessons I've learned along the way. So before I get into Dan's lessons there, I did want to pull out a couple things uh, regarding text, email, and social media. Obviously, those are very important means of communication, uh, even more important now than they used to be. So I don't think Dan is suggesting that we abandon technology. But as we use technology and evolve our communications, it is important not to lose the old tried and true tactics that can still have value for activists and organizers. Not just the good old flyer, as we're talking about this morning, uh, but other messages. Other methods, such as, you know, letters to the editor of the newspaper, a petition on a clipboard, a telephone tree, you know, printed newsletters and handouts, there are still some tried and true tactics that uh, may seem a little old school but can still be very effective, particularly if you are using them in conjunction with more, you know, high-tech uh, communications you know, alongside, you know, social media DMs and things of that nature. So continuing with Lutz's lessons on flyering. Quote, your flyer will will end up in the trash. So you only have a few moments to get across your most important ideas. Use longer descriptive headlines to get to the point right away. It's better to say something like, Protect our benefits. Vote yes to authorize a strike Then to write a short, cute headline. Remember, your flyer is going to end up in the trash. And I will just add to that that writing a short, cute headline may be good for, uh, you know, an article that you're trying to get published in a media outlet. But it's not the way to go with a flyer. I really agree with Dan Lutz there. Use longer descriptive headlines to get to the point right away. Uh, This next one is very, very important. Talk to people. The point of a flyer is to start organizing conversations with our coworkers. A good flyer will give other members of your team the talking points they need to have those conversations and an excuse to go have them. If you have a petition for people to sign or something else to do, even better. Keep it short. Here's a rule of thumb. No paragraph should be longer than four lines. Not four sentences, four lines. And don't use more than two or three paragraphs. Next, teach your coworkers how to pass out a flyer. Many new activists are too shy and will want to just put the flyers on bulletin boards or on the car windshields in the parking lot. Use flyer distribution to show new leaders how to have effective organizing conversations. Use pictures and quotes from members. A direct quote from a popular shop floor leader can be more powerful than just regular text. You can even use quotes for headlines. Every flyer needs anger, hope, urgency, and you. A H U. Why? Anger at what the boss is doing, hope that we can make a change as a union, urgency to take action now, and what we're asking each member of our union to do. So there are five basic design elements to every flyer. A descriptive headline, one strong visual, very short text, a call to action, right? What you want the members to do. And who we are and how to find us. So, on that note, avoid vague calls to action. Chances are most of your coworkers don't want to, quote, join us, or even worse, get involved. You know, who has the time these days to, quote, get involved? But your coworkers may sign a petition, or march on the boss, share the flyer, take a survey, or join a picket. Right. Be specific about what we're asking them to do with this flyer. Make sure there is white space or blank space. Keep plenty of blank space in the margin and around and between your paragraphs and the image. The white space or blank space makes your flyer easier to read. And the best way to have that blank space is to keep your flyer short. Break up your text. Use bullets, numbered points, or check marks to break up the text and, again, increase the white space, the blank space. This one's very important. Don't speculate. Only write down what you can back up. As rank-and-file activists, our credibility is valuable, so protect it. Right, And I I just want to emphasize that. Be very, very deliberate and strategic in the words that you use on a flyer. And certainly don't give your enemies any easy ammunition against you. Dan continues, have someone else read it first. You know how they make two people turn the key to launch the nuclear missile? Treat your flyer like that and make sure someone else reads it before it goes out. And on that note, Proofread backwards. You will catch more typos if you read the flyer backward. Try it and see. Avoid all caps, because all caps make you sound a little off, like you're yelling at folks. Uh, Don't do that. Don't use more than two fonts. Use one font for a headline and one font for your body text. Serif fonts, which are the ones with the little squiggly bits at the end of each letter, are typically easier to read, right? Don't go too crazy with your font choices. And ask, will it photocopy? Make sure your photo is black and white and avoid large dark areas, right? Because many of us have to make copies using copy machines that we're not supposed to use necessarily. I mean, not that any of us would actually ever do that, right? But, you know, on the off chance, You've got to sneak some copies Um, or even if you're not, even if you're having to pay for the copies, certainly if you're having to pay for these copies, uh, make sure it's actually going to copy well, right? And um, so if you are the one who's making these copies, a little bit of advice, make one copy first, see how it turns out, then enter your big number. Right. Don't, don't go straight to your big number. Easy recipe for disaster. So Lutz continues. Avoid quarter and half sheet flyers. Do you really want to do all that cutting? If you absolutely have to have a small flyer, fold it instead. Legendary Teamster president Ron Carey used to hand fold his flyers so that drivers would put them in their pockets. And of course, make sure to fold them with the headline facing out. Next, you're not as funny as you think you are. Uh, It's better to be direct and serious than have your joke bomb. Your flyer does not need to be beautiful, but it should be clean. And of course, the best way to keep your flyer clean is to follow the rules listed here. So Dan Lutz is a staffer at the New York State Nurses Association, and as you heard previously in the article, um, you know, was with CWA at one point, uh, really appreciate this article, the secrets of a successful flyer. It originally appeared in the February, 2023 edition of labor notes. So if you're not subscribing to labor notes, let this be your, uh, additional reminder that that is a really good thing to do. Um, of course, there's great stuff available on their website, plenty of, you know, free information that they provide, but it is worth subscribing to the, the physical hard copy magazine. Uh, you know, maybe this is reflected in the fact that I'm talking about old school flyers, but I still like pen and paper. I still like hard copies of things. Uh, I still like having a printed magazine. And there are things that appear in the Labor Notes magazine that you don't get elsewhere. And so I really encourage folks to subscribe. If you are a union member or even just a union ally who'd like to know more about the movement and maybe pick up some organizing tips and tricks from the labor side of things, it's worth your subscription. Absolutely worth your subscription. Uh, And these Stewards Corner articles are a good example of why, right? Because this is practical advice that you need to know if you are going to be active in your local Uh, or in your council, or any sort of organization, there will come a time where you may need to use a flyer, right? It's very likely. And so these are very practical tips uh, that I hope you find useful. And frankly, probably I should have read this um, years and years ago. Uh, You know, it was only published a few months ago. I could have used some of this advice when I was first starting out, probably. Uh, So hopefully it'll help you avoid some mistakes. So that's a little bit of my training component of today's episode. And I did want to transition to a little bit of Alabama labor history and tell the short story of an almost teacher strike. Folks may remember that we opened the Shop Talk series by talking about the Walker County Educator Strike of 1979, which you can go back and check out as a podcast or on YouTube if you missed it. Uh, Personally, I would probably recommend the podcast that was the very first episode of Shop Talk, so the YouTube live stream uh, was a little bit. Problematic uh, you could say, uh, in terms of technology and glitches and getting it off the ground. Um, this is a good time to remind folks this is my solo project, so I'm in the studio by myself when I do this, um, and I am not a media professional, so you know sometimes accidents happen, uh, but at the same time, uh, the podcast is going to have a little bit better uh, quality in terms of the audio and and some light editing done so Check that out if you're interested. The Walker County educator strike was the first, to my knowledge, actual strike to take place among teachers in Alabama, and it was also successful. In the fall of 1979, in districts and states across the country, school did not open on schedule. A wave of strikes among educators and school support staff didn't just hit big cities and union strongholds, It rippled all the way down to the Deep South. In Walker County schools, teachers and other school employees united to win a month-long strike that would involve a supposed financial crisis, bank protest, solidarity from the UMWA coal miners, and intervention by local coal barons. Earlier in the year, Choctaw County schools came really close to provoking a strike of their own. Choctaw County is located in the southwestern portion of the state of Alabama. As of the 2020 census, the population was only 12,665. Meanwhile, the 1980 census listed 16,839. So there were a few more folks in Choctaw County back in 1979 when this event happened. The county seat was and is Butler And the racial demographics are about 55 percent white and 45 percent black, with a significant amount of the population living below the poverty line. The county was established uh, back in 1847 and obviously named for the Choctaw tribe of Native Americans who uh, lived there. And a few months after this New York educator strike, the county was declared a disaster area in September 1979, due to damage from Hurricane Frederick. So that's a little bit of the context here, um, happening amid a nationwide uh, energy among teachers. And we saw strikes in the Union strongholds in the Northeast and Midwest, but also out in Western states and down here in the South, in Alabama, in Louisiana. And uh, one thing that's interesting about This wave of strikes and how it trickled down into the South is that there's very little information out there. Uh, There's very limited sources. Now, I'm not a professional historian by any means, but I've, you know, done some some due diligence here in trying to research um, these teacher strikes and near teacher strikes that occurred during the 70s and early 80s here in Alabama And there's just really very little information out there. So if you're listening and you're really into labor history, uh, let me just suggest those would be great topics to dive into and to find out more. Uh, I would love to learn more about these uh, educator organizing efforts in the 70s and early 80s because I think we could learn from that. And, you know, it also was a time when public sector unionization was really – um, hitting its stride, uh, you know, unionization took took hold in the public sector much later than the private sector, and really didn't get going until the '60s and then '70s. Um, and so, the organizing was still kind of newer, maybe had a newer energy to it. Uh, but I, I really am interested in learning more about these issues and about these struggles and how educators, particularly across racial lines, were able to unite and take on these powerful school systems, uh, particularly in a state like Alabama, where teachers never secured the legal right to strike or the legal right to collective a bargaining. And so, you know, certainly educators in Alabama have been at a disadvantage from day one compared to our brothers and sisters in other states. And uh, for those of you who or maybe new listeners. I'm a former educator myself. Uh, I taught high school history for a few years. I represented rank-and-file educators in Huntsville City Schools for over five years, representing those employees. Um, you know, I have a family full of educators, so teachers are certainly near and dear to my heart, and that's why I'm interested in these historic struggles of teachers, particularly here in Alabama. So I say all that to say, if there are any grad students listening, PhD students listening, um, professors, uh, historians listening, we'd love to learn more uh, about these teacher struggles in Alabama and across the South. So um, please share anything you come across. Uh, Please share any sources you come across. I would definitely be interested. With all that said, Uh, The one source that I am going to refer to here for this issue in Choctaw County is AEA, Head of the Class in Alabama Politics. Now, I use this as a main source for my Walker County segment as well uh, because there's not much out there. And this book was published back in 1997 by AEA, uh, written by Don Eddins, who was an AEA staffer. Um, so, take that into consideration, right? This is, you know, the AEA, Alabama Education Association's officially sanctioned history. Uh, I believe it's since been out of print. You can't really find it anymore. Um, but certainly it was written with some bias, and so you have to take that into account. But that said, it is an important source for these struggles uh, that are so underdocumented. So, I wanted to share from Don Eddins. AEA head of the class, about the near teacher strike in Choctaw County. Quote, Choctaw County teachers were incensed in February 1979 when they picked up their papers and read that the local board of education had voted to cut salaries 6% in the event of an anticipated funding shortage. The Choctaw County Education Association, the CCEA, summoned Paul Hubbard and others to an emergency meeting where the association voted 192 to six to refuse to work if salaries were reduced. And I want to stop there to point out that Paul Hubbard, Dr. Hubbard at the time was head of the AEA, um, and his right-hand man, the number two-ranking person, in the AEA was Dr. Joe Reed. Um, and so those were two very high-profile leaders of this association. Uh, and very high profile in Alabama politics at the time. And 1979, you could argue, was kind of at the height of the power of AEA in terms of its militancy and its its organizing and some of its political clout. Um, and it was only really 10 years old in its modern integrated form. Uh, AEA dates back far, far, you know, beyond that, uh, into the 1850s. But um, in 1969, AEA merged with the Black Teachers Association, ASTA. Uh, And so Dr. Reed and Dr. Hubbard brought those two organizations together. They had a very successful uh, integration. And, you know, in those 10 years that followed, AEA built a lot of power in the state. So in Choctaw County, you had this issue where the school board is threatening a 6% across the board cut to salaries. And as I mentioned, the local association voted 192 to 6 to refuse to work if the salary cuts were enacted. So turning back to Edens, we need to send them a, our message now about how we feel towards working without pay. Local President Vernon Underwood told the angry educators. Hubbard explained that under the State Teacher Tenure Act, the board's action would be illegal for teachers on continuing service. No pay, no work became the rallying cry of the teachers. The school board considered the cut after Governor Fob James announced for 6% proration beginning March 1, 1979. However, five days after the teacher's emergency session, the board met to analyze its financial situation and determine, determined that cutting employees' pay would be unnecessary. The strike was averted, and the system finished the year without incident. So I found that really interesting that in the same year we had this historic strike in Walker County among educators that only a few months earlier, We had a very close call uh, in Choctaw County. And, you know, 192 to 6 to refuse to work is a very, very significant margin when it comes to a strike authorization vote in any context. But a strike authorization vote where it is explicitly illegal is, you know, that's quite remarkable. And I think the fact that it only took five days after that vote. For the school board to reconsider shows the power that these educators had built by being united and by being willing to push the envelope. They were willing to even break the law if necessary. Now, in this situation, they knew that the school district was going to break the law, or at least were threatening to break the law. They didn't have the authority for a six percent across the board, you know, pay cut. Uh, as Hubbard said, yeah that that is clearly uh, illegal um you know for tenured teachers. It certainly was then, and even now uh would be you know quite the complicated issue if a school board tried to do that um, so you know, I find that a really interesting story, and I, I wanted to point out the demographics as well of Choctaw County just because while I don't have much information about the demographics of these teachers in 1979, um, you know, the fact remains that the county is about split in terms of racial demographics. And so I can only imagine that the education force looked somewhat similar uh, to the population. And so that's interesting to me as well uh, the idea of black and white employees joining together uh, after having only experienced integration for some decade. Um, I think that's really significant. And so I would love to learn more about this struggle in Choctaw County in 1979. I would love to learn more about the Walker County strike in 1979. Um, I I should also point out there was a near-miss strike in 72 in Demopolis. Uh, So even a few years earlier, that one was interesting because the educators were actually organizing to defend the job of a superintendent. Uh they actually threatened to go on strike to save a superintendent, you know, and keep them in office. Uh which was, you know, quite shocking to NEA at the time who, you know, was shocked to hear of a possible strike in Alabama and even more so that it was to defend the boss basically. Uh, but it was a situation where the superintendent was getting railroaded by the school board for you know political reasons. And the superintendent had been an ally of the educators and they rallied behind him. Uh, and so we do have a history in this state of educators coming together, uh, uniting with parents and community members and other union members even to build a movement that can take on the school district and that can take on these restrictive laws in our state that suppress our right to organize and suppress our right to assemble and suppress our right to free speech. The history indicates that when we unite as everyday working people alongside our common interests that we can make a difference and that history is significant. So I wanted to share that story. Uh, I also do want to mention The last strike that I'm aware of uh, that was successful was in Scottsboro. And that one, if I'm not mistaken, was in 1981. Uh, I I do plan on doing a little intro to the Scottsboro teacher strike at some point down the road. But more importantly than that, I have a list of folks to talk to who were involved in that strike back in 81. And so including one person who was a student during the time and and helped lead student walkouts uh, in support of the strike. And so that's something that we have on our radar and something that we would like to do. Um, And again, if you know anyone, if you anyone listening has contacts or, or family members that may have experienced some of these kind of struggles, whether it's these specific ones when it comes to educators in the 70s and 80s, but any strike. Any labor action, any labor struggle here in the South, here in Alabama, especially, but anywhere in the South, if you have that connection, talk to those folks and connect us uh, because we love to hear these stories. So with all that said, I do want to wrap things up this morning. Uh, we are gonna, you know, cut out early this morning. I want to keep it short and brief. We had a little history, a little training. And I want to wrap up by sharing what Labor Notes is up to in terms of their events. They are wrapping up their Secrets of a, of a Successful Organizer workshop series. If you missed that, uh, because they did start July 12th, July 19th. The final series, final session is going to be the 26th. Uh, if you missed it, stay tuned because this is a, a workshop series that they bring pretty regular. And I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, If you have a chance to attend the Secrets of a Successful Organizer training in person somewhere, that is obviously great. Um, And they do have a troublemaker school coming up in August. um, Yeah, online. Secrets of a Successful Organizer series is coming up in August. So if you did miss it this month, no big deal. You can still get to it. Um, a couple of other events I wanted to point out: They Labor Notes is doing their very popular race and labor workshop, and it has two parts. The first session is going to be on Saturday, August fifth, and then the second part is on August twelfth, again Saturday. Uh, and these are taking place from eight, from eleven to one p.m. Central Time. Uh, so obviously, I can't attend. I'll be on the Valley Labor Report during that time. But it's something that I do recommend folks check out if, if, if you know, if they're at all interested. It's an online workshop. It's held through Zoom. And the subject of this workshop is how does racism show up in our workplaces and our unions? What are some strategies to confront it and build solidarity for a stronger multiracial labor movement? And what can you say to union siblings who aren't convinced racial justice has anything to do with union politics? So. Definitely recommend you check that out. Uh, Also, in August, on August 1st, what to do when your union breaks your heart. Uh, If you've not attended that session, I do recommend it. Ellen David Friedman was on the show uh, for Shop Talk last month, and we talked a little bit about that workshop that she does, as well as some other stuff in, in terms of her history and what she does with Labor Notes. So, definitely check out that episode from last month with Ellen David Friedman. I think you'll enjoy it, uh, especially for those of you who have been union members for a while or, or maybe you're a new union member and, you know, there's some things that are bothering you about your union or, you know, you just have some issues that you've experienced in the movement. Uh, it can be a very helpful workshop. And on July 25th, we'll be Thinking Like an Organizer. That is the Stewards Workshop for this month. And it is intended for stewards and elected officers who work closely with stewards. So, you know, they recommend you only register if that applies to you. Now, obviously, if you're interested in being a steward and like you're in the process, you're, you're planning on doing it, uh, this would be a great workshop for you. Again, it's on Tuesday, July 25th. It's going to run from 6 to 730 Central Time on Zoom. And it is to train you on how to think like an organizer. As a steward, and I think that's a really important training because it's not necessarily going to come natural to everyone. Um, and I also think it's important because, as a steward, a lot of times you were kind of you can get stuck in the rut of just the servicing model and putting out fires, and you know going through the grievance process and policy and procedures, and you can get into that. Uh, But there's also opportunities to organize around these issues, even when you're helping individual members with, you know, their individual cases. And so I really recommend that stewards workshop as well. And that is going to do it for, I believe, the 18th episode of Shop Talk now. I do hope it was worth your time and I really appreciate everyone listening. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your network and make sure that you're plugged into our work. Just a reminder that the Valley Labor Report is a working-class media collective dedicated to lifting up labor struggles throughout Alabama and across the South. We bring you Alabama's only Union Talk radio show every Saturday morning with the first half from 9.30 to 11 a.m. live on FM radio through WVNN here in the Huntsville Listening Area. The entire program is online via Facebook, YouTube, and podcast. And portions of the program are replayed on WZZA in the Shoals and WHIV out of New Orleans. We do encourage you to check out our website, tvlr.fm, which we use to publish uh, articles, including news and commentary, original reporting, uh, write-ups of our clips. Uh, We've got some new articles that are coming out this week, including uh, some original reporting about the longest Starbucks strike uh, that actually... Uh, a guest writer of ours, a friend of the show uh, one of our northern sisters uh, did some original reporting on really excited to get that published this week and uh, while you're there sign up for your, our email newsletter and that way you can stay in touch with us and kind of know what we're doing and as we put out new content you can be in the loop and also check out our store tvlr.fm/ store We have a new shirt up for pre-order We still have some shirts left of the Good Things Unions design, Uh, and then we have the new redesigned Join a Union or the Boss Will Get You shirt, riffing on the famous Go to Church or the Devil Will Get You sign on I-65 here in Alabama, Uh, so definitely check that out while we have the pre-orders open through August, uh, and the shirts will be delivered in September. And finally, we rely on donations and sponsorships to put out all of this free content. We really appreciate the local unions and organizations that have sponsored ads on our main Saturday show, as well as Labor Notes sponsoring Shop Talk. So please hit us up if you have ideas for sponsors or if you're interested in your organization or business becoming a sponsor. And our single biggest source of contributions comes from listener donations. You can make a one-time donation or a recurring contribution at tvlr.fm donate. We also take checks to our P.O. Box. We accept Patreon if you prefer to donate that way. Uh, whether you donate, share, subscribe, or just tune in and listen occasionally, we really appreciate your support, and we can't do it without you. So if you share our mission to grow the Southern labor movement, if you share our belief in the power of solidarity and collective organization, if you want media that is for working people, by working people, please beco- please consider becoming a recurring donor at tblr.fm slash donate. All power to the workers. Solidarity, y'all.